Our reading is from Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 1 through 24, in the New Living Translation. I am the one who has seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the Lord's anger. He has led me into darkness, shutting out all light. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and surrounded me with anguish and distress. He has buried me in a dark place like those long dead. He has walled me in and I cannot escape. He has bound me in heavy chains. And though I cry and shout, he has shut out my prayers. He has blocked my way with a high stone wall. He has made my road crooked. He has hidden like a bear or a lion waiting to attack me. He has dragged me off the path and torn me into pieces, leaving me helpless and devastated. He has drawn his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He shot his arrows deep into my heart. My own people laugh at me. All day long they sing their mocking songs. He has filled me with bitterness and given me a bitter cup of sorrow to drink. He has made me chew on gravel. He has rolled me in the dust. Peace has been stripped away, and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. Hi, friends. Thank you so much, Val and Zach, for reading the scripture today. Thank you to the band for being here and for you at home. Uh, I pray that the Lord is with you in this moment, that you sense his spirit guiding you, and that today you can have hope even when things are hard. Uh, like Matthew said and Chad said, it was 10 years ago this Sunday that we celebrated our first preview service for restoration. And it was also 10 years ago that we watched our middle daughter uh, suffer in and out of the hospital for 12 days with what would become gastric paresis. She ended up staying in the hospital about 12 days and started school with a pick line for nutrients as a first grader. It was definitely a challenging time. It was also two years ago this week that one of our church members, um, a beloved wife, mother, and friend, Elena, was uh, hit in a car accident. Um, we watched from the sidelines as the information unfolded and we learned the severity of her injuries to her brain and her body, and she died two months later. And two days ago, I said goodbye to my firstborn as we dropped her off at college. She watched as we hugged her. Uh, yes, I said that correctly. And waved goodbye and said a prayer for her. And it is just fine. Uh, but all of those things have a gamut of emotions. And I say each one of those things to let you know that not all suffering is created equal. And it doesn't negate the reality of your suffering. 
Maybe you don't see it as a challenging moment or you haven't experienced some of those examples, but have you named your losses this summer? Have you thought about what you expected to have this year and instead what you got? I'm not talking about what, worrying about what may or may not happen. I'm talking about communicating what has been lost and how to worship in the midst of it. Because I'll be honest, I want this pandemic to be over so much, but it's not. And I don't think it's going to be in the near future. And there's likely more losses to come. So the question is, how do we worship? How do we worship in the pain and in the suffering? Well, I think the answer is lament. We can worship in lament. If celebration is the language of the well-off, then lament is the language of suffering. So, the Bible's written in many different genres, and one of those genres is poetry. And within that genre, specific to the Psalms especially, there are these two broad categories of Psalms of praise and then Psalms of lament. So, praise expresses our worship for the good things that God has done and the goodness of who He is. And the Psalms of lament express prayers rising out of need. It's this worship response to the reality of suffering that engages God in the injustice, the trouble, and the pain in us and in our world. Unfortunately, the average Christian and the American church avoids lament. In fact, for years, the American church, and especially, I'll be honest, the white evangelical church, has presented this theology of celebration and avoided the theology of lament. And the faith communities that focus on celebration usually do so because they they don't want their lives changed. Like the home prices and the stock values should continue to climb, taxes and interest rates should remain low. But lament... Lament calls out the struggles of life. It cries out for justice against the wrongs. The status quo is not to be celebrated, but instead needs to be challenged. And see, when we find ourselves in a year like 2020, with the coronavirus pandemic revealing all of the liabilities of our lifestyles, the mental health crisis that I still believe is to come, and it just shows us how fragile we really are. And then we look at the racial injustices, especially in America, that have always been present but can no longer be ignored. When we find ourselves in the midst of that, many of us have no idea how to worship. I hear it when people tell me they feel far away from God, where they don't feel like they're growing in their faith, or they just don't know what to do. So that's what we're talking about today. How can we worship in the pain? How can we worship when life is hard, when we don't see a way out? So I want to show us where lament can take us and why we need to go there. Our roadmap is the book of Lamentations, and our travel guide, if you will, is the prophet Jeremiah. So just a little Bible background. Okay, so uh, you can easily compare Jeremiah with the modern-day evangelist, uh, Reverend Billy Graham. Billy Graham sat with and even counseled 12 consecutive United States presidents over 50 years. Think about those numbers for a second. From Harry S. Truman in 1953 
all the way to Barack Obama in 2010. Now, he didn't have close personal relationships with every one of them, but he certainly did with at least three, according to historians. So I want you to imagine that kind of influence for a moment. Because Jeremiah had that kind of influence. He prophesied not only to God's people, but also to five kings during his 35 or 40 years as God's prophet. He witnessed this pinnacle moment in the history of their nation as King Josiah found God's holy book and led the people in national repentance. But he also witnessed the brief reign of Josiah's wicked son, and then the capture of the capital city, their city, Jerusalem, by their enemies. And then the stealing of all the treasures of the temple, which wasn't just their central religious institution. It was also their main financial institution. All of the gold and the riches from King's past had been stored there. It was like the U.S. Department of Treasury or a Fort Knox, if you will. And not only that, then he witnessed the kidnapping of the best and brightest leaders in the land like tens of thousands of soldiers and officers and skilled workers and artisans. And so only the poorest people in the land remained. And then he witnessed a decade of taxation and oppression with weak, wicked kings until that same empire, Babylon, completely destroyed their beloved temple, which, remember, King Solomon had built. Jeremiah watched all of this with his own eyes. He wept with his own tears. And he still prophesied God's messages. He figured out how to worship in the pain. The book of Jeremiah predicts it, and then the book of Lamentations looks back on it. So now start to imagine that kind of loss. Which I don't know if we have to imagine very hard, because maybe in the midst of this pandemic, we can imagine what it must have been like. A city burning, leaders churning, not knowing what to do, lost income and lost jobs, lost friends and lost loved ones, lost community, lost church meetings, lost health, exhausted emotions, teetering on depression, I listened to a leadership uh, conference last week, and two of the top emotions that people are experiencing right now are exhaustion and denial. How do we find our way through? Like I said, I think the answer is in lament. See, I see three reasons in Lamentations 3 why lament helps us worship even in the pain. And the first is that lament helps you to bring your pain to God. Not just to have pain, but to bring it to God. Jeremiah, he records five poems, like poems of sorrow, almost funeral songs for his beloved and decimated city. And not only is Lamentations poetry, but it's highly structured poetry. And think about that. You might be like, well, why, is that, why does that matter? Because when everything else in life is chaos, when we can't control anything, highly structured poetry grounds us. Not just the writer, but also the reader. It gives us stability and approachability to God. So wherever you're at, whether it's your current decisions 
or the doubts that you're having, or even maybe some depression you're having, you can bring all of that to God. He's not qualifying it or checking to see. Nope, you can't bring that. God is not the TSA, okay? You can bring it all to him. So are you bringing him your highs and your lows? Are you letting him know how you feel, how you really feel? Because God wants to talk with you. Well, second... Lament helps you to be honest with your pain and the pain of others. Specifically in Lamentations 3, the prophet describes the pain of his community as if it's his personal pain. Listen to some of the words that Val and Zach read. He's made my skin and flesh grow old. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and surrounded me with anguish and distress. He's buried me in the dark place like those long dead. He's walled me in. I cannot escape. He's bound me in heavy chains. He's blocked my way with a high stone wall. He's made my road crooked. He's dragged me off the path and torn me to pieces. He's leaving me helpless and devastated. Are you starting to get a picture of what Jeremiah is experiencing? Verse 11. Or verse 15, excuse me. He's filled me with bitterness. He's given me a cup of sorrow to drink. He's made me chew on gravel. I don't know if you've ever eaten something where all of a sudden you're, you're chewing through something soft and you feel something hard and it just pierces your whole mouth. Yeah, imagine that. Chewing on gravel and rolling in the dust. Now, I don't think the prophet is just feeling all the feels or focusing on himself. No, I actually think he's connecting, he's giving his voice and his presence to the pain of his community. See, lament isn't about your pain, your pain or my pain. Lament is about our pain and the pain of others. Because when you and I, when we come face to face with our suffering and the suffering of others, both of us feel seen, heard, and known. See, when we lament the pain, the suffering, and the injustice of the other, we're also acknowledging that God is present in the midst of that brokenness. Because even when we ask God, where are you in all of this volatility and fragility, all this uncertainty and isolation, we're assuming God can hear us. And when we express that suffering, when we welcome that hurting, then the church becomes a safe place. Not only for those people, but for that suffering to be expressed and for the shalom of God, God's peace, to be pursued. So maybe right now in the comments, you could write down something painful that you've experienced in this time. Now, we're not going to judge each other's comments. We're not going to discredit someone's experience. We're going to acknowledge those experiences. And trust me, when you do this, even when we can't see each other, just by someone else acknowledging the experience that you've had, you will feel seen. You'll feel heard. You'll feel like God is more present than he was before that. So be honest with him. Bring that pain and be honest about that pain. And we want to do that, but what we have to be careful of 
when we're suffering, we have to be careful not to get in this spin cycle of only remembering the pain. See, if we only remember what you did or what someone else did or what you said or what someone else said, if we keep reopening that text or rereading that email or keep going back to that person's social media page, then we're actually not worshiping in the pain. We're instead worshiping the pain. God doesn't call us to worship the pain. God calls us to worship him. And in order to worship in the pain, we have to worship God while we're in pain. That's the most important thing we learn from Jeremiah and lament. Third, lament helps to point you to something greater than the pain. Lament helps you to point to something greater than the pain. See, in his darkest moment in the whole book, Jeremiah is strengthened with this assurance that God has been and will continue to be faithful. Jeremiah witnessed God's judgment, but he also witnessed God's loyal love. Jeremiah can hold the complexity of God and on the one hand grieve deeply because his city is destroyed and his nation is devastated, but he can also cling to the fact that God has given his love, that God has given his promises. He says, but this I call to mind and then I have hope. See, I believe what Jeremiah remembered in that moment is what God had promised when all of this happened. He wrote a letter to the exiles who were some of the people that were kidnapped and brought over to Babylon. They were living hundreds of miles away in another place, in another culture, given other names and living totally different lives. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, this is what he experienced. He went in this first wave of exiles in 605 BC. And then there was another wave of people in 597 BC. And then there was then the complete devastation in 586. But in some of those time, in those 10 or 15 years, People were thinking, oh, this is only like a really bad summer vacation or a really bad summer detention camp. It's not going to be that long. But Jeremiah had heard from God otherwise. See, in Jeremiah 29, he writes this from God to the people that were thinking it was going to be a short stay. He says, you will be in Babylon for 70 years. So he says a little bit before this, so build homes, Plant gardens, pray for the peace and prosperity of the city because where you're planted, if you pray for that and it prospers, you will prosper. But, he continues, then I will come and do for you all of the good things I have promised and I will bring you home again. And then a verse that possibly you've even heard before. This is the context of it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Even while they're in exile, the plans are for good and not for disaster. They will give you a future and a hope. And then when you pray in those days, I will listen. And when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. It is a promise. I will be found by you and I will end your captivity and I will restore your fortunes. And I will gather you out of the nations where I have sent you and I will bring you home again. This is the promise of this faithful God to his people who have been disobedient and are now in a long, long, long time out. We can cling to God's promises even when we grieve God's judgment. 
That's what lament helps us to. It helps point us to the right kind of remembering so we can truly worship God even in the pain. See, lament pushes us as a community of faith to push and look beyond the current brokenness of our reality and acknowledge our need for God, which opens the door for God's help and his work. So we lament not only what we've done or have not done individually and communally, but we also confess that there is a God who is still Lord, who still reigns, who is still present, even if there's not a monument or a temple to focus on. That's what it was like then, but think about what it's like now. As a lot of churches still can't meet in their places, which might have become temples, God is still present. He is still Lord. So we confess that God who provided hope not only for Jeremiah's day, but for all of humanity came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ who called his body the temple. And then after he was raised from the dead, shared that temple by his spirit. Now that we have become his temple and that when we are gathered, he is present. He calls the church his body, the new temple. And now we bring peace and God's presence and his hope to wherever we go, including to the hurting, to those suffering. And we don't have to be something we're not. We just be who God has made us to be. His light, his love, his hope, his patience, his mercy, his goodness. And that doesn't come from us. That comes from him. So what is God saying to you that you need to call to mind at this time? so that you can have hope. See, what, what I call to mind is actually these verses from Jeremiah, because they're not just this context for what Lamentations was talking about. They're also the verses that God spoke to me more than 10 years ago that propelled me to say yes to starting this church, that God wanted to create a new community of people, because that's what we are. Restoration is a community of people, We are not just spectators, we are contributors to God's kingdom. No matter who we are, or what we have, or don't have, or our age, or our prestige, or our education, we are a community of people, and we are still that even if we can't gather. That we are restored by Jesus himself. That we need his word, and his spirit, and his community to be known and to walk together But we can experience that whether we are gathered or whether we are scattered. And we are like those exiles, bringing hope to those around us. Again, wherever we are. See, those plans were not just for me or for Jeremiah. God has plans for you today. He has plans for us today. God has a future and a hope for us that we will continue to join with Jesus, continue to transform communities, that we can invite one more person to be a Christ-centered follower, and that Christ-centered follower, as they are faithful, as they engage in community and in service and in worship, that those people can become Christ-centered leaders, that those leaders can create Christ-centered ministries, that those Christ-centered ministries can become Christ-centered churches, and those Christ-centered churches can even lead more people to transform more communities. That's what I call to mind when I need hope, that the God who prompts this work provides his presence, regardless of how I am feeling. Now, I'll be honest, there have been moments where I have not felt 
amazing and hopeful and encouraged where I felt isolated and depleted and exhausted and depressed. And yet, when I think about this, I have hope. See, the reality is there doesn't need to be a global pandemic going on. There doesn't need to be national injustices going on. You might just be struggling to worship in your day-to-day pain and struggles. And so that's what I want you to be encouraged by at this point, that there's, there is hope even for you in the midst of wherever you're at. So I want to close with this story of a guy named Thomas Chisholm. Now, you might not know Thomas Chisholm. I didn't know Thomas Chisholm. You might not have even heard of him, but he impacted the world more than he could have imagined. Thomas Chisholm was born a long time ago, in 1866, actually, in a little southern town of Franklin, Kentucky. He grew up on a farm. He received an education from a little country schoolhouse, and at age 16, he started teaching at that country schoolhouse. Now, in my mind, the leaders were either super desperate, or they saw something in Thomas that was good, that would bring good out of others. And so he started teaching there later became a Christian at age 27, and then at age 36 was ordained to be a minister. He hadn't even gone to seminary, but again, I think people saw something in him that was going to bring good to others, and so they had him pastor this church. Maybe it was a dream come true for him, but he was actually only able to pastor one year because he had such ill health that it just made him impossible to continue. So he moved to New Jersey. He opened an insurance office and worked in insurance to provide for his family. Now, I think Thomas had plenty of reasons to be discouraged. He'd endured years of poor health, didn't, wasn't able to make a lot of money, had to give up this dream of speaking and reaching the next generation and a generation for Jesus Christ. And instead, he got to sell insurance. And if you sell insurance, that's okay. It provided for his family. But he didn't get to do what he thought he was created to do, to impact a generation and the next generation for Jesus Christ. But even in the pain, he had this talent for poetry. And so he wrote a lot of poems, even in the pain. In fact, he penned over 1,200 poems during his life, and he often shared them with his friends. In fact, on one occasion, 20 years later, in the 1920s, he sent some of those poems to a good friend named William Runyon, a musician that was associated with Chicago's Moody Bible Institute and a publishing company. And Runyon was on this road trip, leafing through the poems, and then this one hit him. And the depth of the meaning and the lyrical beauty was just so profound that he recalled in that moment this particular poem. It held such an appeal that I prayed most earnestly that I might be able to bring a tune to it that would carry its message forth in a worthy way. Kind of an old English earnest prayer, though. And out of that simple prayer, Runyon actually had a melody that took shape and he completed the hymn and published it within that same year. And then he shared that poem-turned-worship song with the president of Moody Bible Institute and it became his favorite worship song. So the president invited this unknown singer at the time, George Beverly Shea, to sing this song on Moody Bible radio station. Remember, in Chicago and through those broadcasts in Chicago, a student at nearby Wheaton College 
named William Graham, maybe you've heard of him, he goes by Billy, heard that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And Billy Graham invited George Beverly Shea on his evangelistic crusades where he shared the hope of Jesus with millions and millions of people. That song traveled around the world between 1950 and the year 2000. Looking back on that hymn at about 75 years old, Thomas Chisholm recalled, my income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in my early years, which has followed me until now, which is a really polite way of saying, I've been sick my whole life and poor my whole life. (laughs) Although, I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God that has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. Again, a really polite way to say, God has always provided for me. God has always cared for me. God has always given me more than I could have asked or imagined, and I will be forever grateful. See, that's what Lamentations 3 says. It says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Hear that today, church. God's faithfulness and his compassions and his mercy are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know how much you're suffering or how much you're hurting, but I know this. The unknown ill-health insurance agent who had a dream to share the hope of Jesus Christ with as many people as possible actually was realized. And if that dream, if God can do it for Thomas Chisholm, then I believe that God can do that for you and for me and for all of us. What do you need to call to mind so that you have hope? Do you believe that God's mercies are new today, every morning, no matter what you've done or where you're at or who you are, that God's mercies are available to you, that you can cry out to him and say, God, I have been striving in my own strength to live my life, to be a certain way, and I surrender to you that I can't do this myself that I need your help, that I need your goodness and your salvation, that Jesus, you provided a way. I understand that now, and I ask for your goodness and your grace and your peace and your salvation to come into my life. Maybe you are someone who thinks that God could never use you, that God could never like you, let alone love you, Can you hear today that his mercies are available even to you? That Jesus cried out that today you will be forever with me in paradise to the criminal on the cross that for his whole life had led a life of rebellion and in that moment was asking for forgiveness and it was granted to him and it will be granted to you. What do you need to call to mind so that you have hope? Would you be so 
bold as to share that in the comments because you might encourage someone who is in the same place as you that thinks they're completely alone in this time, isolated, and that their thoughts could never be your thoughts. You could bring hope and encouragement to them. So would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the stories, for your word, and for how you are at work even in 2020, even in a time where there is racial injustice, where there is global pandemic, where there is depression and mental health, like a tsunami coming across our country and our world. God, even in that, your mercies are new, your compassions don't fail, and today we lament with you the suffering that so many have experienced. We lament the death and destruction that has been brought to this this world, to those that have and those that have not. But we also look past that pain to something greater. God, that you are still at work, that you are bringing revival, that you are bringing goodness, that you are bringing hope, that you are giving us another chance to receive your son, to be part of your family, to be forgiven, to receive a fresh start, to be restored. We love you. We thank you, God, for not giving up on us. We thank you that your faithfulness is so great.